Welcome to the July 31st sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road at Amherst. Today's scripture is Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, and the sermon is entitled, What's Holding You Back? Delivered today by Associate Pastor Clyde Moyer, Jr. This morning, I'd like to walk us through the story of the rich young ruler. This story has primarily to do with people who are sincere and honest in their search for Jesus, but allow something to get in the way that keeps them from following through. If you are listening to this sermon and you don't know Jesus as Savior, this sermon's for you. But this story can also be used to speak to true followers of Christ who are genuinely saved and yet have allowed something to come between them and taking the next step with Christ. If you're in that category, this sermon is for you as well. The principle is valid in both cases. For some, the Holy Spirit may reveal that we never really committed to Jesus with our whole heart. For others, we may realize that we've been skillfully diverted from following the path that Jesus set before us. We may have developed too strong a love for the things of the world leaving us as carnal Christians, having followed him as Savior, but not having submitted to him completely as Lord. As we walk through this story together and begin to unpack its meanings, I pray the Lord will show us which category each of us fall into and what to do about it. Let's pause just for a moment as I ask the Lord to guide us. Father God, I stand before you and ask you to use me, Father, and not allow me to be the speaker. I ask that you would take control by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, like Solomon prayed, I don't have the wisdom to lead your people, but you do. So I ask that you would step in and guide your people with whatever you want said. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture passage for today is found in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to them and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. Thou knowest the commandments do not commit adultery, do not kill. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things I have observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again, and saith unto them, Children, How hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, 
saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For God, with God, all things are possible. This morning I'm going to walk us through four points. The first point is taken from verses 17 and 18, and the point is, we should ask. 17 and 18, and when he has gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. Matthew tells us that the ruler was young. Now the Greek word for young is nekniskos, and it referred to someone that hadn't reached the prime of life yet. Although it honestly could refer to anyone from, the, from boyhood all the way up to 40 years of age. We have to assume the young man had some age on him because he was also called a ruler. And that refers to a leader or an official of some type someone that had administrative authority. But regardless of the young ruler's age, this would be a normal question to ask if you were a Jewish man living under the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is and was all about what people needed to do or not to do in order to please God. The young ruler viewed Jesus as a man that clearly had special understanding or connection with God, so he asked him, What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? His question is sincere. He ignored the dignity of his office, he came running to Christ, and he fell on his knees before him. By falling to his knees, he is showing great respect to Jesus and acknowledging that he believes Jesus can answer his questions. He did this even though Jesus wasn't alone. Jesus was walking along the road with other people, but the young ruler's desire for an answer about his own eternity was so great that he determined not to miss the opportunity to speak with the prophet, regardless of who heard what he, what he asked. Many of us, including myself, have sought times to pull Pastor Mike or Pastor Jeffrey apart or someone that we get counsel from, and I have never done it in a crowd. Whenever I have something private to ask, I want to ask it in private. I don't want other people to know what I'm asking. It may be something very personal. And yet the fear of his eternal destination, the desire to do the right thing, drove this young ruler to interrupt Christ as he's walking along a road in a crowd of people and just blurted out. And not only did he do that, he threw himself to his knees in front of Christ, which is actually a form of worship. He came in sincerity, and neither did he come to Jesus like the religious leaders did, who only wanted to trick Jesus into saying something that he could be arrested for. This young man was genuinely thirsty for the word of God concerning his eternal future. Remember the point. We should ask, but we should ask genuinely. We should ask with our whole heart. As he often did, Jesus answered his question with a question. Jesus said, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. 
Jesus is trying with this question to get this young ruler to think a bit, a bit around the question he had to ask. There is no one in this world that is good. Jesus knew that, and he assumed the young ruler knew that. In fact, many years ago, there was a book written by a gentleman named Rabbi Kushner, Why, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And the honest answer should probably be, you find me a good person and I'll give you an answer. There are no good people. We are all sinners. All have come short of the glory of God. Only God is genuinely good. So Jesus is trying to help him understand that by calling him good, he is actually acknowledging that Jesus is God, whether he realized it or not. This would be a tremendous step of faith on the young ruler's part, which might open his heart to believe on Christ. So our first point again is we should ask, the young ruler has done that, and he's come to the right source for his answer. Point number two, verses 19 and 20. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Now, there had been no reply to Jesus' question by the young ruler of why he was calling him good. So Jesus answered the young man's question simply and directly by saying, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. Now, the first section of Jesus' response is called the pietus, and it has to do with man's relationship to God. The second part is called the probitus, which has to do with man's relationship to man. The point being, in Jesus' response, he wasn't asking the young ruler about his relationship to God, but his relationship to his brother man. And the response from the young ruler was, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. I would not dare have said that. I cannot imagine someone thinking that they've covered all the bases, checked all the boxes. I suspect your first thought in hearing that would be skepticism as mine is. And the startling thing is the Lord accepted his statement as truth. So this is a remarkable young man. So fulfilling the second point of we should listen, we see the young ruler has listened carefully to Jesus' response, understood his statement, and answered correctly. I suspect many of us as Christians never get past step two. Many of us go to the Lord. In fact, I hope all of us go to the Lord and read his word and pray and ask for his guidance. Mentally, just for a moment, ask yourself, what's the percentage of time you spend asking the Lord versus the percentage of time you spend listening for the answer? The silence in here, and of course there would be, but I imagine there would be silence from all of us because we'd be embarrassed to answer the question directly. In Sunday school this morning, I was sharing an example from uh, the Bible that talks about we need to listen to God's voice 
And the Bible has a, an example of a shepherd and sheep. Uh, as I shared in the class, sheep are compared to us because sheep are dumb. If you know anything about sheep, they will do everything they can to do the wrong thing and get themselves in trouble. They are a high-maintenance animal that you have to keep up with. And I would have to say we are accurately labeled, uh, at least in my own case. The other part is the shepherd, which is, is the example of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that is said when Jesus is talking about this is he said, my sheep know my voice and they follow me and they won't follow anyone's voice other than my voice. Now for many, many years, I assumed this was symbolic until about two years ago, I read a story about a place in the world where sheep really are one of the major uh, jobs and production things in the area where this was. And apparently there would be a sheep pen that maybe there were three or four or five or even six different herds, excuse me, flocks of sheep, the herds of cattle, flocks of sheep, uh, in that same area grazing. But for safety, when they would bring them in in the evening, they would put all of those flocks in one sheep pen. What I'm saying is, is if there are six flocks of sheep, they're mixed all in, intermingled with all of the other flocks. So you couldn't tell one from the other for the normal person. The story said that literally, very literally, the sheep know their particular shepherd's voice. And what happens is, is when they're getting ready to go the next morning, the shepherd walks to the sheep gate and he calls his sheep, and every sheep that belongs to his flock, one by one, walks out of the sheepfold and follows only him. And each shepherd does that until all six flocks are together with their brothers and sisters and the right shepherd, and they head back out to graze. This was not symbolic. To fulfill the second point of we should listen we must learn how to listen. Uh, I called Shirley Giles yesterday to talk with her, and before I could say anything, and hello, Miss Shirley, she said, hello, my friend. She knew my voice. By the way, she didn't have caller ID, so this really was a good thing. <laughs> um, how did she recognize my voice without me identifying myself? She recognized it because we spent enough time together that we know what each other sound like. You want to know the Lord's voice? You do the same thing the sheep do with the shepherd. You hang out with the shepherd. The more you hang out with the shepherd, the more you'll easily you'll recognize his voice. You must learn to listen in order to do point two, which is we should listen. Point three is in verses 21 and 22, and it is entitled, We Should Examine. Verses 21 and 22 say, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. <clears throat> and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. 
If we had needed any proof of this young ruler's honesty and character, Scripture dispels it by the verses that say, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. When you consider that young ruler's answer, as well as Christ's response, and amazingly his acceptance of it is accurate, we would have to conclude this young man is well on his way to heaven. He is pleasing to God in all forms. He was free from any gross or terrible sin in his life and past. Jesus agreed that he was truthful. He had described himself accurately. The young man had every right to assume he was in good standing with the Lord. I would not doubt that there are people here today that when they're thinking, you're thinking about your standing or I'm thinking about my standing with the Lord, we think about the fact that maybe we were born into a Christian family and we were raised Christian. Maybe we've read the Bible quite a bit. Maybe we've attended church for 40, 50, in my case, about 62, 68 years, somewhere in the 60s years. We know the right answers to the questions that an evangelist might ask us. We know what to say if they say, what do you have to do to accept Christ as your Savior? We can answer that. I feel sure that the neighbors of this young man, and maybe your neighbors as well, your family would agree, you're a good person. But hell will be filled with good people. Jesus' next statement changed the entire situation. Jesus said, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. The young man had come to the Lord, and he had asked, he had known the word of God and he had known the Mosaic law well enough to say he had listened and, and done the best he could to do what he heard when he listened. And now he fulfills the third point of examining by thinking about himself and thinking about his choice. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that says, examine yourselves to see whether you, you are in the faith truly. There are people that look to be in the faith that will not be there. If I stood here, let's assume for a minute that everyone in this room knows me well enough to believe in your heart that I would not lie to you. Okay? That I will do what I promise. And I say I have a $1,000 bill, if there is such a thing, a $1,000 bill here, and the first person that walks down and asks for it, can have it. You all believe that I will do that. Let's say Rose Mabry stands up and comes and gets a $1,000 bill and goes back and sits down. And everybody says, isn't that nice? How many have the $1,000 bill? One. You know why? Belief wasn't enough. Belief demands action. She's the only one that came and asked for it. You can live in a church, but if you have never come to the foot of the cross and asked Jesus to save you, you do not have it. All you're going to do is go to hell from a nicer place, and it's your choice. This young man, sadly, 
makes the wrong decision and stops just short of salvation. Point four, we should obey. It's heartbreaking to me that the young ruler made the wrong choice. Jesus had asked the young man to choose between his great wealth and accepting and following him. It must have broken Jesus' heart as well because we know, because he'd already said, he loved this young man. As far as we know, this is not a parable. This is a literal story about a literal young man who at a specific point in time came to Christ and asked these questions. That being the case, because the word of God has no mistakes in it, we know that this young man turned salvation down and that affects permanently where he will spend his eternity. Where is he right now? He is currently in Hades waiting to be called before the great white throne judgment where only the lost will appear for judgment between heaven and hell. No one will be saved standing at the great white throne judgment. Everyone that shows up there will go to hell. The only difference between them will be there are levels in hell of punishment and there will be different levels that these people would be sent to. Let's look at verses 23 through 27. They say, And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again, and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure. They were dumbfounded, speechless, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved if a rich, powerful, popular, nice-looking person can't make it? What is that going to say for all of us that are average or less than average? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. This is truth. I have to say, as I read the last few verses, the disciples' response to Jesus makes me feel a lot better about myself and the mistakes I make. The disciples did their normal thing. They completely misunderstood what Jesus was saying. So I feel a lot better. Uh, I do that on a regular basis. But Jesus completely destroyed the idea that rich people could make it because they were privileged. They were in the upper class when he said... It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. If you have enough money, you can buy almost anything, but you can't buy your way into heaven. You cannot. Matthew Henry said, The difficulty of salvation of those who have an abundance of this world's goods is because there are few who have a great deal to leave who can be persuaded to leave it. For Christ. Realizing the disciples' confusion, Jesus quickly explained that he wasn't saying rich people can't go to heaven. He's saying rich people will rarely trust in anything more than they trust in their money. I have known people, probably you have known people, their peace and their comfort derive from the stability of their bank account or their portfolio. My portfolio is more like a pamphlet, but at any rate, 
I can lose that pamphlet in a heartbeat. I, I don't keep me saved. Jesus does. And I don't keep me okay. God does, regardless of what happens to my portfolio, regardless of what happens to the things that you have. Jesus finished by saying anything is possible. This is the story of a real person who turned away from God because the cost was too high. What about us? Where are we in the story? Because every one of us is in this story at one point or the other. Have we applied the four points to ourselves? Have we asked God to lead us step by step? Have we listened to God and understood what he said? Have we examined ourselves to see whether we be in the faith? Have we obeyed God in whatever he's asked us to do? And if not, saved or lost, what specifically is holding you back? Because that needs to be dealt with. If we've never agreed with the Lord about our sins, if we haven't repented and asked Jesus to forgive us and come into our heart, the answer to what's holding us back is extremely simple. We need to be born again. And until we take that step, it's impossible, not improbable, but totally and completely impossible for us to move forward in God's plan for us. We must first become a member of his family. And there's only one way to do that, and that's through the, the sheep gate of Jesus. However, because of who I am and the way I'm raised, I was born and raised in church. My mom tells me that they, she started bringing me about two weeks old. I don't know how happy that made the other folks around me when I was there, but I've been here for a long time. My family is Christian. I was raised understanding salvation and Christianity. I believed it with all of my heart, but I wasn't, it wasn't until I was 18 years old until it made the 18 inches from my knowledge to the heart of who I am. It's the longest 18 inches in existence. There are many, many people that have intellectually accepted Christ, and that won't take it. It will not do the job. That's a lie from Satan if you think that you're going to go to heaven because you're a good person and you know a lot about Jesus and you agree with everything he said. So what? That's not what's required. What's required is personal repentance, personal request to God to save you, and personal acceptance and faith in the, the finished work of Christ on the cross. Then you can know you have it. That's why my primary focus in sermons like this are to folks that were like me. You're good people. You're moral people. You do the best you can to live like you should. You try hard to do what you think God wants you to do, but you've never quite made that final step. Those of us who know the Lord have clearly accomplished the first three points of asking, listening, and examining, but while we have followed Christ as Savior, we have submitted complete, and com we have not submitted completely to Him as Lord. Uh, or we have, if we know the Lord. If we don't know the Lord, that's where we've broken it down. We haven't quite completely submitted. Anything short of submitting to Christ stops us dead in our tracks spiritually, 
and affects the entire body of Christ because necessary work that was assigned to you will not be done. There may be someone in hell because you were the first choice God had to reach that person and because you didn't, God had to use the second choice. I do not think we're accidentally made. I think we are precisely and exactly created and prepared and shaped to fit a genuine and specific spot in the overall plan of God for mankind. That means I have people I need to reach. So do you. In my mind, there can be no more agonizingly frustrating position than to belong to Jesus, but be resisting what he's telling us. Those are the most miserable people on earth. You're not still a sinner, so you can't just hang out in the sin and enjoy the sin, at least temporarily. You're not serving, working, walking with the Lord as you're supposed to, so you don't get the blessings and the peace of honoring and obeying Christ as we should. You're in a limbo land in the middle trying to stand as close to your favorite sin as possible while trying to stand as close to the Lord as you can get away with. You're stuck in the middle. Why do churches have so much trouble getting enough people to minister? Why aren't there enough missionaries to be sent to every place in the world that doesn't know the Lord? Why are there fewer and fewer pastors, and you may not have known this, but there are fewer and fewer pastors that retire as pastors. A massive percentage get frustrated, tired, and quit because people just aren't responding. Romans 10:13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a wonderful verse. I read it often, and I stand on it. But Romans 10, 14 to 16, the next several verses say, how then shall they call in on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Esaias saith, Lord who hath believed our report? The words, Lord, who hath believed our report, can be understood to be asking this question. If professing Christians have genuinely believed the report of the gospel, where are they? Where are the people in the work of the Lord that there is not a, a lack of Christians working everywhere you check? Any church, any ministry. What has caused born-again Christians to be content with life as normal? We may go to church regularly on Sundays and Wednesday evenings. We may tie their income and serve on committees, sing in the choir, maybe even stand behind a pulpit. But where does it say in the Bible that we have the rest of the week to play with the things we want to? Where did we get permission from the Lord to whom we claim to be bond slaves to only work for him when it's convenient. If you are a slave, you answer the call of your master 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Where does it say we have six and a half days or more to not think about it? The stark truth is, if we're honest and all of us are guilty to some extent, 
Most Christians serve out of convenience and not out of commitment. Trust me when I tell you that's not what the Lord has in mind and it's not what he's called us to and it's not what scripture says we're to do. Most of us subconsciously rebel against the Lord's call to us because our new nature still lives in the fleshly old man that we left behind. In Ephesians 4, 21 to 24, Paul says, If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, put ye off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. This is an ongoing, minute-by-minute, second-by-second battle. Satan will defeat you if he defeats you as a Christian in your mind. Many of Paul's writings refer to something that is well-known in Paul's day. The The armor of God in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, he probably used the example of what the man was wearing that he was chained to. That is an accurate description of the armor of a man of God. It is also the accurate description of a Roman soldier. And if you read it carefully, you will notice there is absolutely no protection on the backside of the soldier. The reason for that is, both in a Roman soldier and for a Christian, is that it's safer for us to keep fighting than to try to turn and run, where we are defenseless. In this case, Paul is exhorting us to put off the old man. And once again... To my surprise, he is painting an accurate picture of a genuine situation in the time in which he lived. Sometimes in the Roman Empire, in the case of murder, the Roman emperor would decree that the dead corpse of a victim be tied to the back of the murderer. And he was sentenced to carry the corpse until it rotted and infected the murderer's own body to the point that the murderer would eventually die from the infections and disease that he caught from the body of the man that he had killed. Paul is saying, lay down the corpse of the unacceptable person we were and strive daily to reach the person that we actually are in God's eyes. If you're going to walk and serve the Lord, you'll have to do it in his strength because you cannot do it in your own. We belong to God And we are required to act like it. There is a story about Alexander the Great, who was the conqueror of the world, the known world. It's said that he actually grieved and wept when there were no more places to go to conquer. It came to his attention that there was one of his soldiers that was acting as a coward. He was cowardly in battle. That soldier's name was Alexander as well. Alexander demanded that this man be brought before him. And when he was brought before him, Alexander looked at him and said, either change your name or change your ways. We call ourselves Christians. We have to answer to the same thing. What's holding us back? A family, a job, possessions, a cherished sin we don't want anybody to know about, but we don't want to let go of an improper relationship Fear of what God might call us to do. Not being willing to trust God would do what he said he would do. 
We need to get rid of anything the Lord shows us needs to be gotten rid of. Or we need to get it in the right perspective through his faith and his power. The Lord knows where you are. The Lord knows what he has called you to do. And the Lord knows whether we have obeyed. I doubt any of us have a question about what that is in our own life. As I'm teaching and preaching through here, but with what I believe God told me, that gives me the confidence that God has shown you something in your own heart. Not because of me, because he's talking to you. The only question is, what are we going to do about what he says? Will we turn him away again? And go back to our normal lives? Re-involve ourselves in the fun sins that we haven't given up yet and so we can try to self-medicate and not have to think about the truth God has revealed to us? Or will we bring it to the foot of the cross? Family, as Christians, it's high time you and I did much-needed business with God. We can turn away like the young ruler, or we can come to him in repentance and ask that he touch us and heal us in whatever way we need to be healed. The only way, even as a Christian, to peace is through trusting and obeying. God bless you. Please choose wisely. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, please remove me from what I feel you had me to say, and I ask that you would touch people. Don't let them remember me or what I said. Let each of them hear what you are saying to them in their own heart. Give them the strength, the ability, and the faith to stand up and do whatever they need to do. Accept you as Christ, repent, and rededicate themselves to genuinely become a bond slave as we've claimed to be. They may come to the altar just to pray by themselves or ask someone to pray with them. Lord, it doesn't matter as long as they're obedient to your call. Thank you for doing what you wanted to do, Lord, in Christ's name. Clifford Baptist Church invites you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. For more information about our church, please call our church office at 434-946-0555.